The Grancidillo School of Business and Management at Pepperdine University proudly presents the Dean's Executive Leadership Series. This podcast invites top business practitioners and thought leaders to share their view on the real world of business. Well, good evening, everyone. It's so good to have you here for our Dean's Executive Leadership Series. Uh, we started this series a number of years ago, and I guess two or three years ago, began bringing it to uh, Northern California. And we try to do a couple of events each year in this area because of our wonderful alumni base and our executive MBA program that we host here at the Tech Mart. And so uh, by chance this year, our two events in Northern California ended up being fairly closely scheduled together. So we start tonight and then in a month on, uh, or actually a little less than a month, on May 3rd, we will be back and we will have with us uh, John Figueroa, who is the president of uh, McKesson Pharmaceuticals. He's actually... May 13th, I'm sorry, thank you, wrong date, so remember May 13th, uh, McKesson Pharmaceuticals, and John is actually an alum, and I believe he's going to be our first alumni uh, speaker in our Dean's Executive Leadership Series, so we hope that you will come back and be a part of that, and then we'll actually kick off our Dean's Executive Leadership Series in Northern California next fall in October when we have Randy Pond of Cisco with us, so we're really excited about ending the season here this year and beginning the season next year in Northern California. I would also like to uh, be sure and, and thank Farmers Insurance Group. Uh, we have a member of our board, Faye McClure, who's with Farmers, and they very generously support this series financially and have for several years, so we appreciate that very much and makes it possible for us to do this on a regular basis. A uh, couple of things I want to update you on going on in school before I introduce our speaker this evening. Uh, we have had a, a really wonderful year on, on several, in several respects with some new programs and some new opportunities. I do want to mention uh, we're always interested in sort of how we're doing from a reputation perspective, and I can't give too many details because it hasn't been publicly announced, but there is a, a ranking coming out for business schools that will include a ranking for fully employed or part-time MBA programs, and our part-time MBA program is going to be ranked 51st in that ranking, which is wonderful. There are over 500 accredited business schools around the world, and so it says a lot about the quality of that program, primarily based in Southern California. Uh, but uh, I think it just helps affirm what we know about the quality of what we're doing and how it stands up uh, to other programs around the world. We also have had a really wonderful year with our entrepreneurship program. We completely revised the curriculum in that that really is in our part-time and full-time MBA program and uh, also just had our uh, business plan competition about uh, three weeks ago. That competition is open to all students uh, in all of our programs at Pepperdine and had a wonderful experience, gave away about $25,000 in prize money at that event and uh, had a student from our full-time program win that competition and uh, really the highest quality business plans we have seen. So I think it's a testament to the quality of the program and how we've seen that develop. As because of that and because of what we're seeing evolve in that program, we are also in the process of developing a, a venture fund and what we're calling an accelerator to really help these new businesses get off the ground and be successful. We're going to be partnering with the law school to do that. And so we're really excited about that. Uh, we are still working on kind of the, the legal structure of that and all the details. But if it's something you're interested in, wanted to know more about, there are two folks in the room I want you to meet that you can talk to. So Mike Sims is our executive officer for corporate and external relations. And he and his staff are responsible for this event, but he also is working on that program. And then John Shearer, 
Uh, John is new with the business school this year. He is an executive in residence with us, and he's our entrepreneur in residence. And he's a kind of a technology transfer expert. So he's helping our students as they come up with problems they want to solve to find really good technology solutions to solve those that will create uh, wonderful businesses that will create value. So we're glad to have John here and a part of that. A couple of other people I'd like to introduce in the audience. Robin Washington is a member of our Board of Visitors, uh, is here in Northern California, an alum. So we're glad to have you with us, uh, Robin and Susanna Cass who is also an alum and a member of our Board of Visitors. So thank you both for uh, helping us on the board and for being here this evening. Well, we're here tonight to hear from Ned Barnholt, and it's really a pleasure to introduce him to you and to have him with us. Uh, Ned uh, is originally from New York, uh, came east to, or came west from New York to go to school at Stanford. He has an, uh, an engineering background. And uh, as most of you know, if you're from this area, spent uh, 33 years at Hewlett-Packard, uh, was very successful there, uh, completed his career there as executive vice president, and then was president and CEO of Agilent Technologies as it was spun off from Hewlett-Packard. And Agilent Technologies uh, is, real, is a company that really works on measurement testing devices uh, and, and working with the scientific community and in electronics and chemical analysis. And, uh, led it through some very, very difficult times, um, and we are just really privileged to have him with us. He now spends his time on uh, several boards, including the board of eBay, uh, the board of Adobe, uh, KLA, Tencore Corporation, and he serves on the Packard Foundation Board as well, which is doing some really wonderful things in this region and around the country. And so I know if you're from this area, you know of him, uh, you've heard him receive many, many accolades, and I I would say he's probably a bit of an icon in this region for the leadership he's provided and, and the way in which he's viewed here for the quality of that leadership through some really difficult situations. So it is our privilege uh, to have Ned with us. And so he's going to come share some remarks with us and then we'll have a conversation and then also include you in that discussion at the end of his remarks. So Ned, thank you thank so you. much for joining us. Well, thank you, um, Linda. I don't think I've been called an icon before, but thank you. That's, uh, that's quite a compliment. But, you know, thank you for that <clears throat> kind introduction, and, um, and congratulations to you for all the great things you're doing at the, at the um, Pepperdine Business School. It's impressive to see the kind of programs that uh, Pepperdine is running, both in uh, Southern California as well as up here. So congratulations to all of you that are, that are part of that program. Uh, congratulations also to, uh, to you for running this very successful speaker series. I, I'm actually quite honored uh, to be part of this and when I look at the lineup of speakers. I did notice, however, that I was the only retired executive uh, that was in the current lineup. But um, as my wife says, I'm flunking retirement, so hopefully I still have a few useful perspectives to provide. I've actually enjoyed my experiences since I retired as CEO of Agile in 2005. I do a little bit of teaching here and there, uh, coaching some executives and on boards of both nonprofits and, and corporate boards. So, so contrary to what some people think, um, retirement doesn't necessarily mean playing golf every day and sitting on a beach. Uh, in fact, I'm trying to come up with a new word to define what I do, and it's not retirement. Um, but I, I, when I retired and, and stepped down as CEO, I started thinking about it, and I said, you know, I spent the first 23 years of my life learning to do uh, different things. 
And then I spent 40 years applying that learning in HP and Agilent. So what I'd really like to do, as long as I certainly can, can um, contribute and, and do it, is to share some of those things that I learned in the first 63 years. So this is a great opportunity for me to share uh, some of the lessons that I've learned about leadership. And uh, again, I thank you for inviting me to be a part of this tonight. Uh, before I share my perspectives on leadership, though, let me give you a little bit more background on some of my experiences at HP and Agilent that helped shape my thinking about the subject. I joined HP in 1966, uh, right out of college. I joined in the research and development part of the company. And when I joined HP, it was about $200 million of revenue and about 3,000 employees. Uh, to um, uh, compare that, when we split Agilent in, uh, off Agilent in 1999, HP had grown to $45 billion in revenue and had 125,000 employees. So in those 33 years, I saw a lot of growth and change uh, in the industry as well as in uh, our company. When I joined HP, it was primarily a scientific measurement company. But over those 33 years, the company successfully built new businesses in such things as computers, printers, personal computers, consumer electronics, and services. And in fact, if you go back to the founding of HP in 1939 and look at it over 60 years, from 1939 to 1999 when we split off Agilent, the company grew at a compound annual growth rate of 18% per year. I don't know if there's many other companies in the world that can look at that kind of sustained performance over, over that uh, long a period of time. So people often ask me, well, what is it about HP that made it successful? You know, why did HP have this kind of track record? So I've thought about it, and I've, I've boiled it down to four major things. There's probably lots more than that, but for me, there's, there's mainly four things. First of all, it was a decentralized management structure where people felt empowered and committed to make decisions that actually could help um, run, build successful businesses and also grow new businesses for the company. I was very fortunate that I was a um, division manager at HP at a fairly young age, and I had the opportunity to uh, help HP get into a number of new businesses, uh, including we made some of the very first uh, measurement systems for testing cell phones back in the early 1980s, long before cell phones became the big rage. So that's well over a billion dollar business today for, um, for Agilent. And even some of the very early printers and desktop computers for HP came out of other divisions. So HP's management philosophy is called management by objectives. But with this, each individual felt that they had the freedom to make decisions and act in the best interest of their business or their organization as long as they stayed within a certain framework. The corporate objectives defined that framework. There was a set of values. We, we shared a, um, the same HR systems. We couldn't have different pay systems within the company. But within a framework, uh, we had complete freedom to build our businesses and grow our businesses uh, the, way we, the way we saw fit. And I think this is a way that the company was able to stay relatively nimble and entrepreneurial even as it grew, particularly in the early days. And frankly, it was also a very motivating environment to be part of. The second um, uh, thing that I looked to as one of the success factors was a culture of innovation and making a contribution. 
we never wanted to build Me Too products. And in fact, that philosophy came part of the corporate objectives, and Dave and Bill uh, constantly reinforced this. Uh, we used to have annual reviews where Bill Hewlett and Dave Packard would come around and review the strategy and some of the new products under development at each of the different divisions in the company. But as they walked around and looked at each new product, practically the first question out of their mouth was, where's the contribution? So all of us kind of learned that if we better have our ducks lined up and be prepared to answer that question. The third thing was um, the company made an investment in advanced research. We had product divisions that were doing product uh, development that continued to enhance our existing businesses. But the advanced research lab was separate. And their charter was to look over the horizon, see what kinds of new technologies were out there that could make a difference for our business and actually help us get into new businesses. Uh, inkjet printing is just one of the many technologies that came out of the central research lab. They did a lot of work in, the, um, in our computer business with risk architectures, uh, internet, and, and, and other things. So this was, a, I think, a key thing that kept HP moving forward not getting complacent with their existing set of businesses. And finally, number four was a commitment and to hiring and retaining top talent. Um, each manager was, to, was expected to uh, make this a major part of their job and spent a lot of time on it. And of course, part and parcel with this was having a culture where people were valued and had the freedom to make a contribution, which actually allowed us to attract top talent. So word was out on college campuses that HP was a good place to go because you could uh, have this kind of freedom to invent and uh, make a difference. Now, I think you've probably all heard about the HP way. Um, Dave Packard and Bill Hewlett's values and beliefs had a huge impact on that management style that we, we call the HP way. But kind of an interesting uh, um, story, sometime in the mid-1980s, we decided to give, stop giving free donuts. Up until that point in time, um, we used to have free donuts available during our coffee breaks. And, um, and we, we stopped for a number of reasons, probably one of which was health concerns. Uh, but, um, but a lot of people complained that, gee, the HP way was dead. They had defined the HP way as free donuts. So we felt that we needed to go back and, and do some more work on defining what the HP way really was and wasn't. So we thought about it and defined it, and you can visualize three concentric circles. At the outer circle is a set of practices, uh, like free donuts, like Friday afternoon beer bus that also kind of went away, and, um, and a lot of other practices that, frankly, should change and will change uh, quite often over time. At the middle circle, though, was a set of uh, corporate objectives. And these corporate objectives were around such things as um, profit, customers, uh, fields of interest, growth, employees, management, and citizenship. And these corporate objectives can change, but rarely did. But at the core, at the center of this circle, is the set of values and beliefs that should permeate everything we do and should last forever. And these values were based on the belief that people want to do a good job, and they will do a good job if they're given the proper tools and support. 
and then engaged and motivated employees with the freedom to innovate on how they did a task can be a powerful competitive advantage for any organization. These were the, this was the heart, the, the, the real root of the, um, of the HP way. It was this belief in the goodness of people and that people really wanted to do a good job if given the right support and direction. Now, I was fortunate to have been uh, introduced to Bill Hewlett and Dave Packard shortly after I joined the company, and these interactions made a lasting impression on me. For example, one day, about six months after I joined the company, our lab manager came by and asked if I would fix Bill Hewlett's stereo. Well, to make a long story short, the next thing I knew, Bill Hewlett was at my desk with his stereo. Now, he was called away and said he'd come back and pick it up in a couple hours, and believe me, I was sweating bullets trying to figure out how to fix this thing before he came back. Fortunately, I was able to fix it and was buttoning it up just about the time he returned. But instead of just taking it and leaving, he spent the next 45 minutes talking to me about why did I join HP, what did I like about the company, what did I think about my job and what I was doing, why well, he asked me about my project and what I was working on, and I came away with, an, with this feeling that he was so down to earth and real that it had a huge impact on me, and he seemed genuinely interested in me as a human being. And uh, I had similar experiences with Dave Packard and, and others during those early years, and they made a big impression on, on my thinking about, about leadership. So I was fortunate to grow up in this environment where I could observe HP, how HP worked and how the culture of the company had such a profound effect on everything we did. I was also fortunate to have the opportunity to meet and observe a number of outstanding leaders, including Dave Packard and uh, Bill Hewlett. And these, these experiences shaped my own thinking, my own management style, my own philosophy, uh, and my thoughts on leadership. So when I retired, I started reflecting back on my experiences and some of the things I learned over uh, my 40-year career. And with the encouragement of several of my, um, of my uh, team in Agilent, I uh, took the time to write some of these things I learned down as lessons learned. So I have 10 lessons learned about managing through a downturn, 10 lessons learned about managing change, 10 lessons, 10 lessons learned about CEO succession, and 10 lessons learned about leadership, among others. And so perhaps someday I'll have 10 lessons learned about retirement, but I'm not prepared to write that chapter quite yet. So let me share my 10 lessons learned about leadership and give you some examples from my experiences at HP and Agilent. Lesson number one, first and foremost, successful leaders must build trust and respect in their organizations. And they must have integrity and be real. As you can tell from my comments about Dave and Bill, they had deeply held values that not only helped them guide the company, but also made them very effective role models for how they wanted others to act. They built trust and respect because they were real and they lived those values every day. Everyone in the company knew that they had nothing but the best interest of the company in mind in everything they did. The lesson for me in this is that you need to be yourself, 
and you need to be true to your own values. You can't fake it or people will see right through it. People will follow you if they see that you're competent, honest, sincere, and committed to goals that they believe in. Number two, successful leaders know it's not about them. It's about inspiring and motivating others to do great things. Someone once said that successful leaders must have their feet on the ground and their head in the sky. In other words, you need to be able to inspire and create an exciting vision for the future, but at the same time, never lose touch with the people that are going to take you there. I used to say that being a CEO wasn't all that hard. If you listen to your customers and you listen to your employees, you're probably not going to go too far wrong. Well, obviously, there's more to it than that, but it's important to remember that it's often the people on the front lines that know best what needs to be done. A successful leader is generally a good listener and is eager to learn from people with direct knowledge of what's really going on. Number three, successful leaders are hard-headed but soft-hearted. This was a quote that was often used inside HP and would uh, to emphasize that successful leaders needed to have the courage to make tough decisions and take personal risks, but the compassion to understand the impact of these decisions on others. When the dot-com bubble burst in 2001, we were faced with layoffs at Agilent as our revenue dropped by 60% over three quarters, and we had only enough cash for a couple more quarters. Well, while we knew we needed to reduce our headcount, we set a goal to treat everyone impacted with dignity and respect. I reminded my managers that everyone who left the company was a potential customer or a potential supplier. And as difficult as the situation uh, was, we needed to treat people fairly and with compassion. I asked managers all over the world to personally talk to each impacted employee and go the extra mile to help them through the transition. So in spite of our layoffs that year, we were number 31 on the Fortune Best Companies to Work For list. And there was an even separate article written about us about how you can lay off a third of your workforce and have them still love you. And so I was never more proud of our management team for going that extra mile and helping uh, the company through this very, very painful transition. But this illustrates again how values and beliefs can become a moral compass for you as you make uh, difficult decisions and uh, take uh, difficult actions. Number four, successful leaders need to be optimistic, but also honest and realistic. One of the things I realize, there's a lot of dichotomies about leadership. Um, successful leaders need to look in the mirror and say, this business is broken, this organization has huge problems, <clears throat> and, and not be defensive. But on the other hand, no one wants to follow a pessimist. So successful leaders must also have the confidence that there can be a brighter future and is able to paint a picture of that future and instill that confidence in their team. Now, I've seen a lot of leaders, a number of leaders, who were too focused on the negative and too focused on all the problems. 
And I saw some leaders that had rose-colored glasses on and were in la-la land, and neither, neither one of those kind of leaders were successful in the long run. Successful leaders need both. They need to be uh, optimistic and have confidence, but also realistic and down to earth. Number five, successful leaders focus on the future and anticipate and relish change. Successful leaders are generally externally focused, open to different points of view, and are constantly scanning for things that might impact their business. They recognize that successful organizations can't maintain the status quo and are constantly looking for ways to change and adapt, just like HP did over those six, first 60 years. I believe that managing change is one of the most important skill sets for senior leaders to have, especially today. Number six, successful leaders know the difference between management and leadership and recognize that you need both. This was a major aha for me in the early 90s when I was trying to change the direction of an organization I was leading at that time after the Berlin Wall fell down, our aerospace defense business went away. So we were trying to get into a number of new businesses. And it became clear to me that we had very good management skills to produce predictable results in our old business that was dying, but we didn't have the skills to go into new businesses. And I was making this observation to um, a group of HR managers at HP, and someone raised their hand and said, did I know the origin of those two words? And I said, no. And the person proceeded to tell me that management had an Italian origin that meant to control, like to control the horse. And that, that um, leadership had a Germanic origin that meant to find a new path. And to me, that really defines the difference. But to be successful, an organization needs both. You need leadership to find new paths, and you need to produce predictable results or you're not going to be around very long. So successful leaders understand the difference, and they know that even if they aren't good in both of those themselves, they surround themselves with people who are. And finally, the last four on my list. Number seven, successful leaders set high expectations for their team and are not afraid to deal with poor performers. They have a good eye for talent and provide excellent coaching and feedback to bring out the best of the team. Number eight, successful leaders know their own strengths and weaknesses and aren't afraid to surround themselves with people who are potentially stronger than they are to complement their skills. Nine, successful leaders are very good communicators. And 10 successful leaders can be counted on to deliver on their commitments and have a track record of very good results. Well, that's my list, and I'd be the first to admit that it's difficult to find leaders that excel in all of those different areas. But I will submit that successful leaders are generally pretty good in most of them. And I think that's one of the, one of the things to, um, to think about. So the final point I'd like to make is around personal motivation. I never set out to be a CEO. When I started at HP, uh, I had not a clue where I would, was going. Um, but what I discovered is that I, I really enjoyed what I did. 
and I set out to do every single job that I was given the very, very best I could. And to take advantage of all the opportunities I had in HP to learn more about the business, to become a better marketing manager, to learn about finance, to learn more about other businesses in the company. So when young people ask me for career advice, I uh, generally say three things. Number one, find something you like to do and do it the best you can. Number two, make sure you work in an environment that recognizes your contribution and provides you opportunities to learn. And number three, have patience. In the course of a 40-year career, you will have lots of ups and downs and your progress will not likely be steady or always up and to the right. The challenge is not to get hung up on the end goals. Not everybody's going to be a CEO or whatever else you think you'd like to be. The most important thing that I've learned over 40 years is that it's not where you end up that's important. It's that you've given it your best, you've made a difference, and you've enjoyed the journey along the way. I hope you all have a great journey. Thank you. Mm -hmm.